Thanks for joining us here on the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsaniego.com. Because we are, as a church, um, are walking through slowly the book of John, or the gospel of John. It's a biography of the life of Jesus written through one of his kind of main followers or apprentices. And he writes his letter or his story of the life of Jesus towards the end of his life, after the other three gospels have been written. And he writes for a few specific purposes. One of them is he wants to make sure people understand the divinity of Jesus, the significance that he plays in that. But he also says that he writes this so that you, so that we may have life. And I love that 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 concept would kind of be at the forefront of our thoughts every time we come together to study the scriptures, that everything we read according to John should promote life in us. And so whereas sometimes things that happen in our circumstances seem to rob us of life, uh, the things that we learn about Jesus not only add to our life, but he describes Jesus himself as the life. And so as we look through um, the story and the narrative of Jesus coming to earth, uh, we always want to come with that, that question. How does this uh, promote the flourishing of God's life, eternal life in me, in my relationships, in my workplace, in my day-to-day living and habits? And today, appropriately, is Jesus' start of his ministry. This is his new. He is leaving a chapter in his life where no one really knew who he was. There's no record of Jesus other than one time when he's 12, um, of anything that he really does that's notable. So he just kind of flies under the radar. He's just a kind of ancient Near Eastern Palestinian Jew who is living in a small town, probably apprenticing under his father's trade, which is either masonry or carpentry. And all of a sudden, something switches when he's baptized, and he begins his ministry. And this is John's recollection and telling of this new beginning. And I thought, man, what an appropriate text for us to fall upon this week. As Jesus begins something new, we're about to begin something new. And I I don't know about you, I love New Year's. I love that there is this reset button every single year around this time because the Lord knows I need it between Thanksgiving and Christmas. I just like, all bets are off, right? And so there's this sense of like, well, January 1st is coming, right? A new beginning's coming. Um, I'm not good at keeping resolutions, but I love making them. There's just something that's life-giving for me as I just dream like, well, this is what I could become if I was committed and disciplined. But... Um, so this is really, this is one of my favorite times of the year. I love that, like, I, I, you just sit down and like, what could this year be? And even just beyond that, what could this decade be? What are some of these goals? What are some of these themes that I want to see cultivated in my life? And so with that excitement, I want us to approach the text because Jesus, as he begins his ministry, John records some specific things that I think are central to any sort of beginning, any sort of new beginning that God is wanting to do in our life. And so let's read verses 35 through 51 in John chapter 1. And then we'll kind of pause and work through a few different themes that we find here. The next day, John the Baptist was there again with two of his disciples. 
When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent the day with him, and it was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day, John decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about the one whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Or another translation says, no guile. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were sitting under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God and you are the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. Then he added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Uh, This is an interesting text. A lot's going on here, but three, three words I'd like for us to focus on that we see uh, here in the midst of John's writing as we're moving into a new year and a new decade. The first word is behold. This is the opening of John's uh, announcement of who Jesus is. And we're going to talk about this idea of what is John asking us to behold and what does behold even mean. Secondly, we're going to talk about this idea of being with Jesus we see the beginning of his disciples, his apprentices, come and start to follow him. And so we want to take a look at all five of these guys who start following Jesus come from a different place. And we're going to be looking at all of our uniquenesses and our individuality and how Jesus calls us to come be with him. And lastly, we see that as he's kind of ending his invitation, he makes this proclamation to Nathaniel says, you will see greater things than this. And it's this call to believe, that, that truly, when we start following Jesus, we haven't seen anything yet, that the best is yet to come, that we get to believe that what we will find through life in Jesus will be something greater than we could ever imagine. But let's work through these three concepts this morning. The first one being the word, behold. Uh, the Greek word here is ido. And it's used quite often, and whenever you see the word behold, or I do in the Greek, it means pay attention. Uh, the Greek word here means to be aware of, to consider, to perceive, to know, remember, appreciate, to I do something. So here comes Jesus, he's just been baptized, and at that time, the one who baptized him was also named John, different than the author. 
And we talked about a couple weeks ago, John the Baptist was kind of this phenomenon back then. He had massive amounts of disciples and followers. And so when all of his disciples are standing with John the Baptist, Jesus comes who has no disciples at the time. And as he shows up, John says, I do, behold, the Lamb of God. And as he says this one sentence, two of his disciples are like, we're going to follow that guy. <laughs> right? And, and we find out later, John's not even mad about it. He's like, you should. Like, this is the real deal. This is who you should be following. But I want us just to kind of pause and focus on this idea of beholding, because this is John's command to his disciples. Pay attention. Do you realize what you're seeing? And beholding is an, is an interesting concept. I was thinking about uh, Christmas morning. And uh, we, for our kids, they, as the month builds up, they're always counting the amount of presents under the tree. And they, like, it's weird. Like, they know. They walk in. They're like, oh, there's 12 now. Like, they, they have, are very aware of the amount of presents. And, and then on Christmas morning, they begin to start opening up these presents, some of them big, some of them small, some of them more expensive, than, some of them cheap, most of them. And uh, as they're opening up their presents, it's always really interesting for Jen and I to take bets on which toy they're going to, like, cling to. Is what I'm talking about? Like, there's, they might have 20 toys or 10 toys. They might have a bunch of things sitting on their lap or falling out of their stocking. But then the, the question is, which toy will they play with first? That's the toy that they behold. Behold is the thing that captures your attention. Um, interestingly enough, our three-year-old son, uh, out of all of the like trucks and gadgets and things that make noise and tools and stuff that he was given, um, he recently watched Polar Express, and Jen found the like bell and the like ticket from Polar Express, and like that's his jam this year. Like, that's what he walks around with every single day, is this gold bell and a gold ticket. And he'll, like, watch Polar Express, and he'll sit within his lap. He'll go to Grandmommy's house and bring it in the car. It's like his toy. I'm like, didn't see that coming. But that's it. Is it the most expensive? No. Is it the, like, have all the bells and whistles? No, it has the bell, I guess. <laughs> but, it, but what it has is, for him, that's what he beheld. That's what he, I know, this is the thing that he's like, this is it. And so I want to kind of have that in your, in your mind. When, when John sees Jesus, he says, this is the one. Behold, grab a hold of this. Let it capture your attention and your affection. Timothy Keller, in his book on prayer, has this beautiful quote. I want to read this to you. It's a little lengthy, but stick with me here. To, be, to behold the glory of Jesus means that we begin to find Christ beautiful for who he is in himself. It means a kind of prayer in which we are not simply coming to him to get his forgiveness, his help for our needs, his favor and blessing. Rather, the consideration of his character, words, and work on our behalf becomes inherently satisfying, enjoyable, comforting, and strengthening. Owen insisted that it was crucial that Christians be enabled to do, to do this. He reasoned that if the beauty and glory of Christ do not capture our imaginations, dominate our, our waking thought, and fill our hearts with longing and desire, then something else will. We will be continually ruminating on something or some things as our hope and joy 
Whatever those things are, they will, be, they will frame our souls and transform us into their likeness. If we don't behold the glory of God in the face of Christ, then something else will rule our lives. This is why it's so important to behold. And so as we end 2019 and step into a new decade, my first encouragement for you is behold Christ. Behold it. And, and this is, and, but John gives some defining things here. And something, quite frankly, that is probably foreign for most of us in this room, no matter how learned you are of the scriptures. The thing he's asking us to behold is that this is the Lamb of God. Now, the Lamb of God is something that we sing about in songs, that shows up in hymns, but quite frankly, it's something that feels very foreign to us. And the reason for that, it is something that has been vacant of culture for over 2,000 years. So I wanted just to spend a minute and explain to you why is John telling us to behold, out of all of the facets that Jesus had, why is he telling us to behold him as the Lamb of God? And in order to do that, we have to go backwards a little bit. Go backwards into the beginning, um, really, of the human story when we're presented with the problem of evil, a problem that every single one of us are aware of, some of which makes us have very serious questions for God. And the questions are because why is there pain? Why is there evil in the world? And as we ask those questions, if we're truly honest with ourselves, Although there, there is a lot of senseless evil in the world, a lot of the evil in the world we actually find inside of us. Maybe in more discreet kind of ways. But I think when God looks at his creation, for, us, for him to remove evil would, quite frankly, mean he would have to remove us. And so God, in his love and grace and mercy, stepped into human history and created a way for evil to be removed, but for us to be sustained. And he gave to his new nation, again, this is thousands of years before Christ, a way to do this through the, through the sacrifice of animals, specifically lambs and goats. And again, the minute I start talking about animal sacrifices, some of you guys, especially in Encinitas, are like, we're out. Like, no way. But, I, but stick with me here. Uh, because this is God showing up in a very primitive culture that not only was animal sacrifices common, child sacrifices were common. And so what the God we see here is not barbaric. a matter of fact, he comes in and institutes a new sacrificial system that is honoring to human beings, that gives dignity to children. But what he does is he institutes this, this sacrificial system where a lamb would be brought by each family on the day of Passover, on the day of atonement, and they would be given. And all of the sin and the punishment wrapped around that would be placed on that spotless, innocent lamb. And every year, there would be, and actually to the point where the time Jesus is there, every morning and every night, two goats would be sacrificed. One of them would carry with it the sin, and, um, and as it was sacrificed, would be taking that away. Because it says in Leviticus that life is in the blood. So as this life, this blood is gone, there's no more sin. But the second goat, interestingly enough, was called the scapegoat. And the scapegoat would be sent into the wilderness to die. And that was the, the symbol of that sin is now removed from you. So this is, this is central to Jewish faith for thousands of years. And so when Jesus shows up, guess what's central to the Jewish faith at that time? 
It's the sacrifice of the lamb. And so when John says, behold the lamb of God, there's immediate significance that if there's no lamb, there's no forgiveness. But instead of pointing to a, a sacrificial system that's temporary, they have to do again and again and again. This is the Lamb of God. But here's what's fascinating. John writes his gospel in around A.D. like 90. That's 20 years after the second temple had been demolished by the Roman Empire after the Jewish uprising. And it was at that time, 70 A.D., the animal sacrifices stopped and have not continued for 2,000 years in Jewish culture. And so the rabbis at that time began to instruct the Jewish people, well, you can either sacrifice an animal in your own home, or you can begin to start using prayer as your form of sacrifice. And what's fascinating, you can imagine the, the author here, John the Beloved, realizing this is why John the Baptist referred to Jesus as the Lamb of God. There is no more sacrificial system anymore. And we don't know when it's coming back. 2,000 years later, it has still not come back. But yet something in the prophetic nature of John the Baptist looks at Jesus and says, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The reason why there's no more sacrificial system is not, is not just because of a destruction of a temple and not just because of the, the, the dispersion of a people. It's because of the finality that we have in Jesus Christ. That he is it. So when John says, behold, I do be captivated by this reality, this person, Jesus Christ, everything that has been central to you for your religious acts and your faith and your belief system can now be found in him. Now, I, I understand that I'm talking to people who animal sacrifices is not central to your spirituality. <laughs> a matter of fact, it probably grosses you out and it's weird and barbaric. But there are other things that are central to your spirituality. There's other things that you grew up with, that you inherited. There's other things you've learned and adopted. And what I would encourage you this year is behold Jesus. Would Jesus become central? to how you connect with God as the creator and as your father, as the life that con continues to navigate our existence. That this is what John's saying, this is Jesus. Last thing I wanted to say about this is the same author who wrote this book, wrote the book of Revelation. And guess what one of his major themes is in the book of Revelation? The Lamb of God. As a matter of fact, the first time he mentions the Lamb of God, it's one of my favorite, in Revelations chapter five, Matter of fact, let me, let me read this to you. John is having this vision of the heavenly throne room. He says, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scrolls and his seven seals. And he says this, he, John's weeping because he sees the, the, the turmoil on earth. And then this elder calls to him in the heavenly throne room and he says, Look, See, look at the lion of the tribe of Judah. And here's what's fascinating. Then I saw a lamb. Plot twist. <laughs> the elder calls for John, the, the beloved. Look at, look at the lion of Judah. And as he looks up from his weeping, he sees what? The lamb of God. St. Augustine says, 
Why a lamb in his passion? Because he underwent death without being guilty of any iniquity. Why a lion in his passion? Because in being slain, he slew death. Why a lamb in his resurrection? Because his innocence is everlasting. Why a lion in his resurrection? Because everlasting also is his might. So let's behold, let's behold the Lamb of God. And again, if you've sung these songs and you've heard us talk about the blood of the new covenant, all of these things can seem so foreign. I just want to give you a little bit of context. This is why these things matter so much. Although it may feel foreign, they're central to our belief because Jesus has done away with all of it. He's fulfilled all of it through his own sacrifice. And in doing so, he is now portrayed not only as a spotless lamb, but as a roaring lion who's conquered and created victory, not only for himself, but for us. And so this is how we're presented to Jesus' ministry. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John's, and it's such a like profound, provocative announcement that some of John's disciples are like, peace, we're following this guy. And so they leave John the Baptist and they start to follow him. And this is where we're going to move from kind of the incarnation to an invitation. And so he begins to start inviting, which is kind of our second point, these, these somewhat kind of random characters to be with him. And to be with, again, this is rabbinic talk. This is common, hanging out, following, being an apprentice of a rabbi. And so he calls to them, and he kind of walks through, and just for time's sake, I'm just going to kind of summarize. There, there's five disciples that the apostle John records him calling Number one is Andrew and a guy who's not named, which is either super sad or, um, or he's referring to himself, the author, which he never names himself. He only calls himself the disciple or the disciple Jesus loved. And so most scholars think that the very first disciples who started following Jesus were Andrew and John. And what's interesting is that they were already following John the Baptist, which means they were already seeking they already were looking and hoping and sensing the stirring that Messiah, the Savior, the Rescuer was going to come and redeem them from their plight. And so they hear this announcement and, and Andrew and his other disciple, possibly John, start to follow him because they're already hungry for it, right? They're already seeking after it. And once they come, they, they have this interesting question where Jesus sees them following, which is funny that they don't announce it, they just start to follow him. And Jesus turns around and, is like, and he says, what do you want? And their response is interesting. Where are you staying? It's not what are you about, what are you doing, what's your vision plan, you know? What's, what's your strategy? Where are you staying Again, not a Western question. It's an Eastern question. It's a relational question. Can I come be with you? We don't care about the, the plan quite yet. We just want to be with you. Where are you staying? And Jesus' response to them is what? Come and see. Come hang out. Come be, come be with me. And so they go and, and they spend the remainder of the day from 4 p.m. on with Jesus, and Andrew's response, the thing he's most famous for, he's not mentioned much at all in the Gospels, other than the fact his brother was Simon Peter, who ended up becoming kind of the head disciple or head apprentice. So he runs and goes and finds Peter. Now, 
Peter wasn't following John the Baptist. He wasn't a seeker. A matter of fact, he was a businessman. He was successful and secure, ran a very fruitful fishing enterprise, had employees. And so he finds them and he tells them, he says, we've found the Messiah. And his invitation is not trying to convince him of it. He just says, come and see. Come and be with him. And so you have these seekers and then you're introduced to this other character who's just more secure and successful. And then so we have three disciples. And then Jesus starts to leave for the Sea of Galilee, and he runs into Philip, and he asks him, follow me. This is the only disciple that we know of that Jesus personally invited. Every other disciple was asked by a friend, heard an announcement. There's something. But Philip, what's fascinating about him is Philip is a Greek name, not a Jewish one. We do know Philip lived in a Jewish town. We don't know if he was a proselyte Jew and that he converted to Judaism, but Philip is not a Jewish name. It's a Greek one. And so although there's some speculation there, it's an interesting thing to realize that of all of the disciples, the one that Jesus had to go and seek out was a man named Philip. So he invites, so here again, we have these, these seekers, we have this successful, secure businessman, and then we have this person who's clearly interested in the things of, of the Jewish faith, but probably at some level kind of feels on the outside. And we see, what does Jesus do? We see him seek him out, calls him in. And after he spends time with Jesus, then it says that Philip went and found Nathanael. And it says, come, we have found the one that Moses wrote about, which is kind of their, their Bible, their old, what we call the Old Testament, and the prophets have written about. So again, Philip has done his homework, and he goes and finds his friend Nathaniel, who's obviously done his homework. And Nathaniel's response to this, and I love this, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And if you've been around in the last few months, you, you know that Nazareth is not like a destination spot. Like, no one goes to Nazareth. There's no archaeological finds of Nazareth, even though we know where it is, because there was no buildings built there. It was just tents. It was kind of this ongoing, moving farming community. Maybe 100 people, 80 people. So insignificant that it wasn't on any ancient maps. And so his response here is one of two things. Nathaniel is either saying, that place? Right? It's like one of those little towns on your way to Phoenix. You're like, who lives here? <laughs> That's Nazareth. Like, like, we found the next president of the United States, and he lives in Blythe. You know, something like that. Like, really? Didn't see that coming. Um, sorry if you're from Blythe. <laughs> but but it's kind of, that's one reason he might be responding to that. The second reason he might be responding to that is there's no prophecies about a Messiah coming from Nazareth. It's coming from Bethlehem, which he did come from, but they just didn't know that yet. And so for one of these two reasons, we are introduced to Nathaniel as a skeptic. And I love that in the midst of seekers, a secure businessman, um, an outsider who Jesus seeks out, then there's the skeptic. And same invitation, come. And there's something about this group of men, these five men, who are all in just radically different places of life. And the invitation is to all of them. And so our second, our second 
the point here this morning is wherever you're at in the room, some of you guys are seekers. Some of you guys are like, you're hungry for the things of God and you're ready and you're sitting here and you're taking notes and you're like, I want more of this. Some of you guys aren't and you're, honestly, life's fine and you feel secure, at least you're pretending to be. And you're afraid that Jesus might disrupt your sense of success or security. Some of you guys might be in here and you feel like you're on the outside. Like, oh, these, yeah, they get it. They're church people or they're Christians. Or, but I feel like I'm on the outside. And some of you guys are in here and to be honest, you're sitting here and you're highly skeptical. My, my invitation to you is would you, would you step into a relationship at least a journey with Jesus this year, wherever you're at. You don't have to feel like you have all of this together and then you can begin some sort of spiritual journey or spiritual awakening. Wherever you're at, this is, I think, the point of this story is if you look at these men, none of them were in a similar place. It wasn't like, oh, these are the people Jesus asks to follow. They were all in radically different places. And Jesus, in different ways, shows up, responds differently to each one of them, but the invitation is the same. Come, follow me. One of the things at Light Church that we strongly believe is that our vision of a church is that we'd practice the way of Jesus. We'd become apprentices of Jesus of Nazareth. And what we find through the Bible and other ancient writings is that people who followed rabbis had three goals. And so those are our three goals as a church. Is Number one is that we'd be with Jesus. No action required other than presence. Secondly, that we would become like our rabbi. We'd become like Jesus in his character, his priorities, his motivations. And thirdly, that we'd begin to do what Jesus did. But the very first one, and I would argue the most critical, is just be with Jesus. As a skeptic, being with Jesus for you might look different than someone who's a seeker might look different than someone who feels kind of secure in, in, in life and wherever you are. But my encouragement and invitation to you is what would it look like for you to just be with Jesus? To, to spend time, to carve out time in this next year, whether you begin five minutes in the morning or a 15-minute Lectio Divina or on your way to work. You're like, okay, this is my time. I'm just going to be with Jesus. And maybe for some of you guys, like, I'm just going to try this thing out. Awesome. But would you allow this to be a year where something shifts in your heart? And maybe for those of you guys who have been like, you read an hour of the Bible every day, like, cool. Like, I'm happy for you. Um, change it up. It, it, unless that's helping you be with Jesus. I want us to make sure that we are landing there. And, and thirdly, I want to end this morning's message on the last thing Jesus says to Nathaniel. I, l- I love it. He, Nathaniel comes up. Remember, Nathaniel's the skeptic who literally kind of like digs Jesus like, or throws a dig at Jesus. Like, what, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And he walks up to Jesus and he says, this is a true Israelite. In him there's no deceit. So as Nathaniel kind of questions and digs at Jesus, Jesus compliments and honors him back. And he says, I saw you when you were sitting under the fig tree. And there's something in that statement that Nathaniel's like, 
well, this guy knows more than just a normal human being would. And there's some, there's some things going on there I won't get into this morning. But then this is what he says. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. And there's something about that, that sentence as I was studying this week and just spending some time in prayer for you all that just grabbed my heart. You will see greater things than these. There is a temptation and a tendency that as we get older, we can move towards cynicism. Our hearts can become hardened, and we think that we're protecting ourselves. But I just want to encourage you, what, what would it look like if you believed that? You will see greater things than these, that within our relationship with God, there lies the potential for life. If things feel dead, then resurrection life. That as long as we are with Jesus, we can hold on to that hope and that promise that we will see greater things. And again, I'm not talking about some sort of selfish, shallow kind of thing. I'm talking about something much deeper than that. And so this has become my prayer. God, I want to see greater things. I want to believe in my heart for greater things. It's interesting that the American Psychological Association, I was reading an article they, they recently put, on, put out that they, they used to think there was this, this theory a few years back that there was a God spot in our brain. And what they found is that our entire brain is wired to belief. Some of the things that came out of this article I thought were interesting. Again, very, it's not a Christian article by any means. It says, we have had this long history of believing that the things of the spirit are in camp, are in one camp, and that science and technology are in the other camps, says Thomas Plant, PhD, professor and director of the Spirituality and Health Institute of Santa Clara University. If anything, the recent findings about our neurological predisposition, predisposition toward belief reiterates that we are whole people. The biological, psychological, social, cultural, and spiritual are all connected. Later on, it says, in a study published last year in Psychology Science, University of Toronto psychologist Michael Inslicht measured this uh-oh response in people who performed a standard color naming task. Even though all of the 28 study participants made mistakes, the error-related negativity, that uh-oh response in your brain, where we get adrenaline and cortisol firing was less strong in people with more religious zeal and greater belief in God. They're calmer and more graceful <laughs> under pressure. And so here are all of these psychologists chiming in. They're like, man, we are our best human selves when we believe. We have less stress, less adrenaline, less anxiety when we believe. It's not a segment of our brain. It's our whole brain that functions and bends towards this sense of belief, of taking chaos and making order out of it through this sense of not having everything figured out. Because again, I guess the lie of secularism is the more you have figured out, the more peace you'll have. But in a world that we have more technology and more knowledge at our fingertips than ever before, we have the highest, rank, or highest rate of anxiety and depression than our world has ever seen. It's, it's not information that's going to settle our heart. It's, it's belief. 
It's finding belief in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, our Messiah, who's invited us into apprenticeship to him, that through him we can see greater things, not move towards cynicism, but move towards childlike faith. And again, the, all, all of this, I think, goes together, and this is, this is my, my prayer for us as a church, that as we move out of 2019 and move into a new year and a new decade, that again, we would behold in our hearts our love for Jesus, that we would be with Jesus, and that we would believe that greater things are still to come, not because we want them, but because that's who he is. R.C. Sproul says, it is one thing to believe in God, it is quite another to believe God. So I wanted to, I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up here, and I wanted to end the service a little bit differently this morning. If you have something to take notes on, a phone, you can take that out, or a journal, um, your connect card, anything. I would love just for us to work through some questions as we get ready to end today. kind of title these questions for a new beginning. Number one, what have you been beholding that you need to leave behind? Remember, beholding is that thing. It's the, it's the Christmas present we take with us. It's the thing that, out of all the things in life, it's not that other things don't exist. It's the thing that we fixate on. What is that thing that person, the situation, that fear that you've been fixating on for 2019 and you want to shift and start beholding Jesus. Second question. How will you or would you orient this next year and this next decade around being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus and doing what Jesus did? Um, and I would, I would encourage you, what are ways you want to do it? Just write it down. And again, again, if you're in the ca- a camp of a, someone who's new to this and trying to figure things out, maybe even skeptical, start small. But I'd encourage you to start. And how, but if, if the rhythm of your life doesn't change, then not much else will. So how can you reorient your life? Again, even if it's starting small, to allow yourself to learn to be with Jesus. And thirdly, what are you believing God for in this next year? Where are, what are the prayers you've stopped praying? What are the things you've stopped hoping for? And would you allow God to renew a sense of hope and belief in your heart? And to just come, not, not because he's some sort of divine genie, but because he's a relational heavenly father that we can come to with our beliefs and our dreams and our requests, we can come to him in that posture. And so what we're gonna do is as we have this song being played, um, write those things down and if you don't have anything to write them down, just spend some time in prayer and just work through these questions and let's, let's not enter into 2020 without having thoughtfully worked through our own heart and spirit and what we wanna see happen there. Um, In just a moment, I'll come up and and close us in prayer. Thanks for joining us here on the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsandiego.com. Thank you.